Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about Simon Bolivar, the Venezuelan freedom fighter who spent essentially his entire life fighting to overthrow Spanish colonial rule in parts of South America. And the reason we're talking about this bloke this week is because I don't think there are many people who were as instrumentally influential in the the geopolitics of modern South America. When you look at a map of South America and you see the nations that exist today and in, in the configuration they do with the government systems that they have, a lot of this can be traced back to the influence of Bolivar during this period of enormous political turmoil across much of South America. Bolivar fought tirelessly and for a long time without much long-term success too uh, against the Spanish in what we today call Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, many other places as well. And his resistance to Spanish rule came at, a, at an opportune time, I'll say this, because Spain was struggling to defend its colonial possessions when Bolivar was up and about because Napoleon was tearing his way through Europe, as we talked about the last couple of weeks. Bolivar struck while the iron was hot and used the political chaos in Europe to create some more political chaos in South America as well. After visiting Europe as a young man, after discovering Enlightenment principles that would remain with him for the rest of his life, Bolivar returned to South America. He began to stir up trouble, and and time and time again, he would launch campaigns against the Spanish, fighting for the independence of Venezuela, New Granada, Ecuador, Peru, and of course, the area that would go on to, uh, to bear his name, Bolivia. It was a long and it was a hard fight, and he had more than a few setbacks, but eventually Bolivar succeeded in overthrowing Spanish colonial rule in all of these places, and he established a new republic, Gran Colombia. Now, Gran Colombia didn't last very long, but that's not the point, because Bolivar's legacy certainly did. And as I say, whenever you look at a map of South America, the reason it's drawn up the way it is is because of Bolivar's immense influence in the region as he fought tooth and nail for independence. And his success in doing so has meant that he is known to history as El Libertador, the liberator, as he delivered so much of Spanish America from colonial rule. His story is a long one. It's a full one. So let's not waste any more time. Let's get stuck in here and begin the story of Simon Bolivar, the liberator, creator of Gran Colombia. So we're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to 1783 to Caracas in what was then the Captaincy General of Venezuela, part of the Spanish Empire. Today, of course, Venezuela, an independent nation for reasons which we will come to within this podcast. On the 24th of July, 1783, young, oh, geez, I should have had a run up at this one. Simon Jose Antonio de la Santisma Trinidad Bolivar y Palacios was born. Quite a name. Holy moly, he's done us all a real favour by, you know, not insisting history refer to him by his full name. Otherwise, we'd be here all week just getting through this episode. Anyway, he was the fourth kid had by the wealthy Juan Vincente Bolivar y Ponte, 
and Maria de la Concepcion Palacios y Blanco, who both came from Spanish noble families that had emigrated to Spain's South American colonies and then ended up in Caracas. And they'd done very, very well from them, for themselves in, uh, in the Captaincy General event of Venezuela as well. The Bolivars in particular were, were quite famous for their wealth. They were very, very rich landowners indeed. Anyway, this wealth, it actually ended up, interestingly, being both a blessing, obviously, and a curse to young Bolivar. Uh, both of his parents died, sadly, before he even turned 10. And while his family's wealth meant that he grew up with a life of privilege and plenty, it did cause him some very serious problems because of his parents' deaths uh, when it came to his inheritance. After the death of his parents, Bolivar's maternal grandfather was nominally in charge of him and his siblings, but had absolutely no interest in the welfare of, these, uh, of, his, of his grandchildren. He just wanted their money. And so Bolivar was raised instead, as was quite common for many children of rich families in his time, he was raised by African house slaves, uh, which with one slave named Hippolyta, even breastfeeding him as a, as a baby. And with the death of both of his parents, uh, Bolivar's only real parental figure was Hippolyta, who continued to raise him as his grandfather was obviously absolutely useless in that regard, just, just looking for the, uh, the Bolivar family fortune. And so all, of, all his grandfather did was arrange marriages for Bolivar and his three siblings uh, before he died uh, and then transferred guardianship of the Bolivar children to his other sons, their uncles, and they too were determined to pilfer the Bolivar fortune and young Bolivar hated his uncles as a result passionately. He really didn't get on with the, with the, you know, the, the blokes who ended up in charge of him. As a kid, he was rowdy, he was wild, completely disinterested in, in his studies. And at one point, he actually ran away from his uncle's house and tried to go and live with his elder sister, who by now was, was a married adult. But he was forced to return to his uncle, bundle back off to school, where he did, admittedly, as time went on in, in his teenage years, he began to take his studies a little more seriously. But in early 1799, Bolivar's life uh, changed irreversibly when his uncle decided to send him off to Madrid in Spain across the Atlantic to, to go and visit the, the royal court over there and, and see a bit more of the world. Now, this journey was an eventful one. Uh, he was sent on a Spanish treasure ship, which was delayed by a British blockade for so long that Bolivar was able to take a holiday from his holiday and go and visit Mexico City. But ultimately, Bolivar made it to Spain by mid-1799 and resumed his studies in the Spanish capital in the care of another uncle who had connections at the Spanish court. And in this way, Bolivar began to be exposed to the wider world of not just Euro European politics, but also European culture and, and many of the, the uh, political, philosophical and social changes that were taking place at this point in history. Of course, over the last couple of weeks, we talked about Napoleon, we talked about the influence of the French Revolution, we talked about the fact that Europe in particular was in a great... A great period of, of political turmoil that's only going to get more tumultuous, of course, very, very instructive for young Bolivar to see things like the rise of Napoleon, the way that he influenced and changed uh, the, the texture of, of continental European politics. This was something that very much shaped Bolivar's worldview as a young man in Madrid. Anyway, I mentioned his uncle had some political connections and, you know, perhaps sought to see Bolivar make friends and, and, and again, make some inroads into the, the royal court, but he didn't. 
um, Bolivar, <laughs> Bolivar ended up being banished from the royal court for, of all things, right, it wasn't in being rowdy or boisterous or wild, it was because he wore diamonds in public without royal permission, which apparently was something that you weren't allowed to do back then. Didn't really seem to bother him, however, the fact that he was banished from the royal court. His political career was, you know, didn't, didn't take off as perhaps his family had hoped, but this didn't really matter to him because, well, something else was taking up his attention here. Uh, he had met a girl, uh, Maria Teresa Rodriguez del Toro y Alesa, uh, also the child of a, of a wealthy Spanish immigrants to Caracas, and he fell madly in love with her. He couldn't get enough of this girl, just absolutely head over heels he was. They became engaged. They left Madrid to spend some time in Bilbao together. Uh, and then when she had to return to Madrid, Bolivar did some more traveling. He headed to France, visited Paris, but eventually returned to Madrid, married Maria Teresa in May 1802, when he was just 18 and she was 21. And they returned to Venezuela, to Caracas, where Bolivar fortunately was able to enjoy much of his parents' wealth. His, uh, his money-grubbing uncles weren't able to seize the family fortune after all. And he settled down at this point to a life of unremarkable married bliss. And if things had gone a little differently, that might have been it for the story of Simon Bolivar. He settles down with the girl of his dreams into a life of wealth and comfort, and maybe we never really would have heard anything more about him ever again. But sadly, it wasn't to be, because Maria Teresa died of yellow fever in January 1803, just 21 years old she was. And as you can imagine, Bolivar was absolutely devastated. He's 19 years old, already a widower, beside himself with grief, the poor bastard, and he swore never to remarry. And I tell you what, that is a promise he kept for the rest of his life. He left Venezuela again. He travelled back to Europe, firstly to Madrid, to spend time with his in-laws and go and try to console his father-in-law in particular, who was, as, as you can imagine, equally devastated at the loss of his daughter. And then after visiting Madrid, he travelled further across the continent. He went back to Paris, and he was actually in Paris when Napoleon was proclaimed as Emperor of the French in May 1804, episode, well, I mean, it was last week and the week before, get across it, and remained in Paris for Napoleon's coronation in December 1804. And let me tell you this, Bolivar didn't think too much of it. He had been something of an admirer of Napoleon, but seeing the way that he transformed the French Revolution into what essentially ended up with, you know, as, we, as we've talked about, essentially ended up with Napoleon as an, as an emperor, Bolivar really wasn't too impressed. While in Paris, Bolivar actually ended up staying with a group of other South Americans, and it was with them that he started to discuss independence from the Spanish Empire. Seeing the rise of Napoleon only strengthened his anti-imperial feeling. Uh, Napoleon's relentless imperialist expansion really helped Bolivar to crystallise his political worldview as he became more and more exposed to the ideals of the Enlightenment. And it was this Enlightenment philosophy that really entrenched Bolivar's fervent opposition to imperialism. This was something that he'd become more and more exposed to in his travels around Europe, This, this you know, the principles of the Enlightenment. And as time went on in the years and, and also the decades that followed, Bolivar became more, not less, committed to Enlightenment principles, as we'll see. In addition to his interest in Enlightenment thinking, Bolivar's support for Spanish and American independence grew and grew as he continued to travel and was exposed to more, more people, more cultures, more ideas. When he went to Italy, he visited Rome and visited Monsassa, the, the site of the plebeian uprising, and 
His exposure to historical sites like these, in addition to the Enlightenment principles that had been so formative on this young man's political worldview, they inspired him to take an oath then and there on Monsassa as he swore to himself that he would end Spanish colonial rule in South America. Now, did he keep this promise? Well, we'll f- um, well, I was going to say we'll find out. I've kind of already spoiled it with the... He, yes. Yes, he did. He did keep this promise. He did end Spanish colonial rule, but not for quite a while and not without a fair bit of difficulty as well. So we've still got plenty across. Don't you even worry about it. Anyway, by the time we get to 1806, Bolivar is back in Paris. He's ready to return to Venezuela and start to walk the walk after having talked the talk for so long. But... It's extremely difficult for him to get to get across the Atlantic, back to Venezuela, from Paris, from France, more broadly, for a very good reason. The Battle of Trafalgar. The British had pulled Napoleon's pants down at sea. They had complete control over the oceans, and they made it more or less impossible for anyone to leave France by ship. So Bolivar instead had to travel again, this time to Hamburg in modern-day Germany, where he was finally able to board a ship bound for not South America, but North America, where he ended up in the US. Rather than going to Venezuela, he headed across to the USA and, and spent six months traveling up and down the East Coast. He visited Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C. And ultimately, after a couple of months, as I say, in the US, uh, in mid-1807, he finally was able to get back onto a ship head back down to Venezuela and arrive back in Caracas at long, long last. Now, at this point, remember, he spent most of his adult life traveling. Um, But that is about to change because he is now going to leave traveling around the world behind and focus instead on shaping the history of the South American continent in a way that not many other people have managed to do. Bolivar has become firmly, ardently, overwhelmingly pro-independence, much more so than even the existing pro-independence contingent in Venezuela itself. He is, for want of a better term, a radical. And this revolutionary sentiment was given a huge opportunity to flourish before much longer. Because, as you might remember, in 1807 and 1808, France invaded Spain and overthrew the Spanish government. So this plunged the Spanish heartlands into political chaos, and so the Venezuelan pro-independence faction sniffed an opportunity. They began to organise themselves more earnestly and seek a way to bring about independence from Spain while Spanish attention was focused on what was going on with the Napoleonic Wars back in the Iberian Peninsula. Now, I have to say, Bolivar wasn't hugely involved with this in this phase of developments. He took something of a back seat, despite the strength of his views, certainly in comparison to the very much the front seat that he took in later years. In fact, his his position in this early push for independence was so diminished that when the Venezuelan War of Independence finally began in 1810 and when the revolutionaries managed to overthrow the colonial government in Caracas, Bolivar wasn't even in the city. He was, however, extremely happy with the result, as you can imagine, as chaos embroiled Europe, Venezuela had seized independence, it had, it had deposed the Spanish colonial authorities, and it had established the supreme junta of Caracas instead. Now, as you might have guessed, it didn't last. There's still a lot more fighting for Bolivar to do here. But in the meantime, while this, while this junta has established itself, Bolivar is keen to help out however he can. 
He approached the junta and he offered his services as a diplomat. As a wealthy and well-connected young man, he could be of great use to the new government by spreading the word of this new Venezuelan, uh, new Venezuelan republic across the other side of the Atlantic throughout Europe and, and seek official support from European powers. So Bolivar got back on a ship, sailed across the Atlantic, but this time to Great Britain to attempt to gather support from the British for Venezuelan independence and to have them recognise the young nation. He landed in, in Britain, met with the British Foreign Secretary as an ambassador for Venezuela, but unfortunately the British point-blank refused to support Venezuelan independence. They said against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars, Britain couldn't afford to alienate Spain who could be a potential ally against France, against Napoleon. So Britain, they, they, they claimed they couldn't afford to meddle in Spanish colonial affairs and risk putting the Spaniards offside. So Bolivar really is not happy with himself here. He feels like he's failed. Um, but the trip doesn't end up becoming a complete waste of time because while he was in Britain, Bolivar met another Venezuelan revolutionary, Francisco de Miranda, who was hanging out in Britain at the time. Miranda had already staged a failed coup of his own back in 1806, and he and Bolivar had a lot in common, not the least of which is that they wanted, you know, full and complete independence from Spain. So Bolivar aided the revolutionary cause by convincing Miranda to return with him back to Venezuela to be part of this young, this new republic, and in doing so, thought that he was bringing back a steadfast ally to the Republican effort. Instead, this is actually a move that would backfire quite significantly on Bolivar in time. But we'll get to that in due course. The two jumped back on a ship, headed back to Venezuela, and they found the Supreme Junta had already taken big steps in beginning to govern the, the nation, enacting economic and political reforms, fighting royalists within the country, organising elections... And with Bolivar's very strong support, Miranda ran in these elections. He was duly elected to the Venezuelan Congress, and, and both these men, Bolivar and, and Miranda, played a big part in Venezuela officially declaring its independence from Spain on the 5th of July, 1811. But unfortunately, I mean, you knew this was coming, unfortunately for Bolivar, the new Republic of Venezuela, it didn't last very long at all. Just over a year, in fact. There were enemies of the Republic everywhere, and they attempted counter-revolutions in the name of the Spanish crown. And Miranda and Bolivar ended up falling out as Miranda was promoted to commander of the Republican forces and left Bolivar in the dust as he remained friends with some of Miranda's political rivals. And under the command of Miranda, the Republican forces really didn't do a very good job of fighting the Royalist insurgents. Royalist forces made very effective headway against the Republicans, and then to make matters worse, I mean, this wasn't really Miranda's fault, on the 26th of March in 1812, a huge earthquake ripped through the Republican stronghold of Caracas. The city was more or less reduced to rubble. Bolivar and his men who were in Caracas were preoccupied with helping survivors and, and clearing ruined buildings rather than, you know, fighting royalists. And this earthquake essentially single-handedly scuppered the hopes of the young republic and its, its attempt to survive. Because as the royalist forces, again, who weren't being resisted very effectively, as they closed in on the capital many of those in favour of the Republic actually changed their minds in the wake of the earthquake. They saw it as a sign from God that the revolution did not enjoy divine support and 
that it was, you know, God's will for the colonial government to continue. And so in this way, this earthquake didn't just cause the loss of a lot of life for the Republicans, but also robbed it of a lot of support of people who were effectively too scared to continue fighting the Royalists. Miranda surrendered. He attempted to flee on a ship, but was captured and died years later in a Spanish prison. Bolivar, however, once realising the game was up, he was a a little luckier than Miranda. He did successfully flee Venezuela, and he headed to Curaçao, and then eventually to New Granada, which is modern-day Colombia. And at this point, New Granada was no, it was known as the United Provinces of New Granada, and it had also declared its independence from Spain back in 1810. And so there in Cartagena in New Granada, Bolivar, as you know, a rusted-on revolutionary, as a, a fierce supporter of republicanism and, and the end of colonial rule in, in, the, in, in Spanish America... He was given a minor military command as part of New Granada, and during this period he wrote a manifesto examining Venezuela's defeat and outlining his political goals for the future. And he didn't just sit in his hands, he wasn't just writing, I'll tell you this. After being given this small regiment of troops, he very significantly aided the New Granada Republican effort to hold on to the power it had taken from the Spanish Royalist forces and the colonial government. New Granada is still grappling with royalists in the wake of its independence. Bolivar took the fight to them straight away, and he did a very bloody good job too. He drove back and then chased off royalist forces. He joined up with other Republican commanders to resist increased royalist incursions into New Granada from the recently recaptured Venezuela. And due to his immense success, by the early months of 1813, Bolivar's fame and prestige within New Granada had grown to the point that he was given not only honorary citizenship of the Young Republic, but also a promotion to Brigadier General. This bloke had clearly impressed the right people. And in the wake of his successes, he sought and received, a little reluctantly, the approval of New Granada to launch an invasion of Venezuela and begin a counter-counter-revolution. The rising tide of, of the revolution lifts all Republican boats, he argued, and he said that the time was now to once again take the fight to the Royalists and attempt to seize and overthrow the government in Venezuela as they had managed to do years before. Now, this campaign on Venezuela, led by Bolivar, unlike the first one where he hadn't been hugely involved, this one, personally led by Bolivar, it became known as the Admirable Campaign. And it became known as the Admirable Campaign for reasons that I couldn't discover and really don't understand, because the more I read about it, the less I became convinced that it was actually admirable. I talked about Bolivar's adherence to Enlightenment principles. I talked about the fact that he was someone who was, again, a firm Republican, a staunch believer in in the end of imperialist government. But the way he went about waging this war, this, this renewed campaign against the Royalists, it does not reflect very well on him at all. When the campaign got underway, Bolivar issued, issued a decree. This decree was known as the Decree of War to the Death. And it permitted his forces to commit murder and other atrocities against any Spanish-born civilians within Venezuela who weren't actively aiding the Republican effort. Venezuelan-born citizens, would they were to be spared no matter what their past allegiances were or how they'd behaved during this fight. But anyone born in Spain who didn't actively aid Bolivar could be killed by his soldiers with impunity. Bolivar was seeking to drive a concerted wedge between people born in South America 
and European Spanish people who had come over to fight in this war and defend the, the colonial interests of Spain. And he drove this wedge home in the most brutal way possible by encouraging and allowing atrocities to be committed against civilian populations. A drastic and horrific measure to take, turning a blind eye to murder and, and you know other atrocities. But it did have a very interesting consequence. By escalating things so severely, Bolivar added some, and I, I, I hesitate to put it in these terms, it does feel weird to say it, but Bolivar added some legitimacy to the war. Because if you take a broader view of things at this point, at this point, the Venezuelan War of Independence, a very minor thing in the overall scheme of grand international affairs. The Napoleonic Wars are still raging on, occupying most of the attention of the European great powers. And this colonial conflict in South America, I mean, it was seen largely as a colonial rebellion, maybe a civil war. But Bolivar reframed this and presented the conflict as an all-in war of annihilation between two nations, Venezuela and Spain. So as undeniably horrific as it was, the decree of war to the death raised the profile of the Venezuelan rebels and helped people around the world to take the war a lot more seriously, given the lengths that Bolivar was prepared to go to in securing his political aims. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In any case, the admirable campaign, even if it wasn't particularly admirable, it was very swift. Within six months, Bolivar had marched on and captured the capital of Caracas, and by October had roundly defeated the bulk of the royalist forces in western Venezuela. After his initial triumph, this time, Bolivar was given the title that I mentioned before, El Libertador, the Liberator. And on the 2nd of January 1814, he was named as the dictator of the Second Republic of Venezuela. Now he's done it, you're thinking. Yet again, this bloke, he's marched in, he's fought the royalists, he's defended the republic, he's liberated his people. Yes and no. Because it's not quite as clear as that. Firstly, he only really controlled western Venezuela. There are royalists fighting here and there. But in the east, opposing republican forces are in control. In the east, another republican named Santiago Mourinho refused to accept Bolivar's supremacy. And even though they both sought the same thing, the eradication of colonial Spanish rule, he resisted Bolivar's efforts to bring eastern Venezuela under the control of Caracas. And what's more, the other challenge that Bolivar faced, an enormous challenge, was the fact that the Venezuelan economy, it's an absolute tatters. And due to Bolivar's general disregard for the downtrodden people of colour throughout Venezuela, the people who essentially supported the uh, the economy on their backs, there were further rebellions against the, Repu- the Republic. There were slave revolts and uprising, not to mention more royalist insurrections. This was not a stable or a peaceful period. 
And it all proved too much for Bolivar to handle. The Second Republic didn't even last a year. It crumbled as the enemies of the Republic and of Bolivar closed in on and ultimately seized Caracas in mid-1814. Now Bolivar, well, it worked for him before, tried again, he fled. This time he took as much wealth as he could from the city before he left, and he attempted to escape the royalist net that was closing on him and his treasure. Eventually, however, in September, he was captured. He didn't manage to make it out this time. He was captured. He had his stolen gold and silver taken off of him, and he was sent into exile out of Venezuela. A low point for Bolivar, not only waging a a war of annihilation against his enemies in terms that certainly don't reflect well on his historical legacy, he also looted and pillaged a city before he abandoned it. So really not a high point in, in Bolivar's career, certainly. But I'm happy to say that he turned it around. Because after being sent into exile out of Venezuela, he headed back to New Granada, just like, just like last time, and repeated many of his military triumphs of years previous when New Granada charged him with bringing a rogue province that rejected federalism in line, putting down various anti-republican or royalist sentiment that was here and there. And Bolivar once again succeeded. He did this quite handily, no worries at all. But then, unfortunately, had to deal with a different challenge, Republican infighting that ultimately led to the Royalists making significant advances into New Granada. The fact that none of the Republicans within New Granada could get on ultimately meant that the United Provinces of New Granada fell to the Royalists, just like Venezuela had in 1816. But Bolivar wasn't around to see it. He'd left. He'd seen the writing on the wall. He realized that New Granada was going to fall and he didn't want to be there when it did. And so he left New Granada in 1815 for exile in Jamaica this time. And once again, in Jamaica, Bolivar wrote another manifesto reflecting on the second defeat of the independence movement in Venezuela and also talking about what he wanted to do in the future. He promoted his political vision for the future of Venezuela, for the future of South America. And as New Granada fell, more and more Republicans joined him in exile. They gathered in Haiti whose revolution against their French colonial, colonial overlords had gone a lot better than the efforts in the, uh, against the Spanish in South America. And so Bolivar, realising that this critical mass of, of, of South American Republicans was, was gathering in Haiti, he also headed there, determined to secure independence for the Spanish colonies in South America. Bolivar wasn't a perfect man, far from it. I mean, we've talked about some of his failings here, but you've got to applaud his tenacity, his determination. Setback after setback, after two resounding defeats, he's still not about to give up, and his efforts in Haiti reflect that and reflect a return of Bolivar to his Enlightenment principles. As part of his campaign to get the revolutions back on track, Bolivar met with Haiti's president, a bloke whose name is Alexandre Pétion. Now, Bolivar, as I mentioned before, hadn't shown all that much interest in the plight of slaves and and people of colour in Venezuela. But after meeting with Pétion, he promised that he would free every last slave in every region he conquered from the Spanish if only Pétion and Haishi would throw their weight behind South American independence efforts. Now, You can argue that he wasn't really becoming an abolitionist for the purest of reasons. Certainly that's a case you can make. But hey, freed slaves are freed slaves. And Pétion agreed to aid Bolivar's continued fight against the Spanish once Bolivar committed to the emancipation of slaves in those regions. 
And so now, with momentum returning to the Republican movement, with a, a, an independent nation in Haiti throwing its weight behind these freedom fighters as they attempted to throw the yoke of colonial rule off, Bolivar was appointed supreme leader of those seeking independence in South America, and his old foe Mourinho was made his chief of staff. Gathering their forces once again, and of course aided by the Haitians, the Republicans sailed for Venezuela, third time's the charm, let's go, this time we'll get the dub for sure, and the Venezuelan War of Independence continued as Bolivar landed and, to his credit, declared not, not, not just that all slaves within Venezuela were now free, but also withdrew his former decree of war to the death as the fighting began. Unfortunately for him, however, the campaign did not go so well. After some early Republican victories, the Royalists rallied against the Republicans and soundly defeated them and forced Bolivar and his forces to flee. The third time was not the charm. And to make matters worse, after his defeat, Bolivar was betrayed by Mourinho and his allies, who overthrew him as the Republican Supreme Leader and then attempted to assassinate him. But he managed to escape and he returned to Haiti. But Mourinho, now you know, leading the Republican forces himself, proved to be even less effective than Bolivar. And the Republican forces, beaten as they were by the Royalists, they, they splintered, they scattered, and effectively ended up as roving bands of freedom fighters led by warlords like Mourinho, who were enormously ineffective in resisting Spanish rule. So Bolivar now... In exile once again, a third defeat under his belt and things looking very grim in Venezuela with warlords like Mourinho staging ineffective attempts at seizing power from the Spanish royalists. Does he give up now? Is this the time that he finally throws in the towel? He's been betrayed by his fellow Republicans, forced into exile once again. Does he give up? Absolutely not. Of course not. This bloke was stout of heart, and singular of purpose, and after hearing that disorganised Republicans up and down Venezuela were sick and tired of Mourinho's posturing, Bolivar got back on the horse. Fourth time's the charm. Let's go. Back to it. Bolivar gathered what allies and forces he had, and he landed in Barcelona. That's Barcelona in Venezuela. Very confusing. He didn't go back to Spain. I mean, they just called it Barcelona. Not even new Barcelona. Come on, Spain, get it together, mate. Anyway, he landed in Barcelona in Venezuela and other Republicans flocked to his side. So ineffective was Mourinho as a leader that all of these scattered bands of freedom fighters, they heard that Big Bolivar was back and they wanted to get on side with him once again. Bolivar was ready to resume an organised and united fight against the Royalists, but, I have to say, got off to a bit of a shaky start. Still outnumbered by the Royalists, still outmatched by the Spanish forces, and so he was forced to swallow a pill that might have been a little bitter for him, as he got in touch with Mourinho, the snake in the grass, and asked him to join his fight against the Royalists. Luckily, Mourinho realised the political realities of the time, and he agreed. He joined forces with Bolivar, and after the two men brokered a reconciliation with the other Republicans, they renewed their campaigning against the Royalists. And this 
went a lot better than before. A string of successes throughout 1817 and into 1818 saw Bolivar establish a new capital for for the Venezuelan Republic, Angostura, which he captured in July 1817. Angostura became the seat of Bolivar's power, as other Republicans all recognised him once again as their supreme leader. And the area that was controlled by the Republic grew and grew as Bolivar continued to campaign. However, Caracas eluded him. The traditional seat of power in Venezuela, the traditional capital, he was unable to seize it. In March 1818, his campaign on the old capital was defeated, and Bolivar himself very narrowly avoided being killed in the fighting. But Bolivar by now, he knows when to hold him, and he knows when to fold him. And after his defeat at Caracas, he recognised that the time had come to consolidate his position, not to conquer further. So he withdrew to Angostura and he turned instead to the governance of the areas that were now firmly under his control. He enacted reforms, he rebuilt his military forces, and most importantly, he organised elections for another new Venezuelan Congress. And here is where Bolivar really really shone. Earlier on, you remember I mentioned that Bolivar did turn it around. He moved away from the brutal and despotic behaviour that had been a hallmark of some of his former campaigns and instead returned to the Enlightenment principles that had guided him through his younger years. He freed slaves. He organised elections. He followed through on doing the things that he said he was going to do without a doctrine of unrestricted annihilation at the root of it. He took power in Venezuela. He succeeded in liberating most Venezuelans from colonial Spain. And look, Bolivar wasn't perfect, as I've said. But the reason his legacy today is so powerful is because of what happened directly after his revolution finally succeeded in Venezuela and the decency that he showed as a leader and as a human in this time. Most notably of all, really, was what happened in in 1819, in February. The newly elected Venezuelan Congress met. Bolivar was there, up the front, of course, in the thick of things. He's the face of the revolution. He proposed a new constitution with a centralised government, believing that federalism was not going to work in South America. And as he did this, he strongly advocated for racial equality through the new nation, throwing that he meant what he said when he made those promises to Pétion back in Haiti. He backed up the promises he made. He showed that Pétion's support was well-placed. And then, remarkably, Bolivar surrendered civil authority to the Congress, willingly handing away most of the power that he had accrued as El Libertador. This bloke would... I mean, very easily have had a good shot at a dictatorship for life, using his military power, his influence, his popular and public support to secure what would more or less amount to a throne and a crown for himself. But the Enlightenment principles that Bolivar had been so interested in as a young man in Europe, they were in their deep. And his commitment to them was extremely evident as he handed away the power that he had accrued and worked to establish a, for the time, forward-thinking government in South America. And what's more, while he worked tirelessly to establish this government after having fought for its very existence, while he was instrumental in setting up the the policies and procedures and practices and, and institutions of the Young Republic of Venezuela, 
he didn't stick around to oversee it. Instead, he left the politics to the politicians and went back out to the thing that he loved best, running the Spanish out of South America. You remember how years ago New Granada had aided Bolivar in his invasion of Venezuela, even though the Second Republic hadn't lasted for very long? Well, it was now time for Bolivar to return the favour. In 1819, he led an invasion of New Granada, crossing the mountains, the Andes, between New Granada and Venezuela, and continuing the fight against the Spanish. Remember how in 1816, New Granada fell to the Royalists? Well, in 1819, the Republicans returned with a vengeance. And by September, under the leadership of Bolivar, they had captured the capital, Bogota. Bolivar paraded triumphantly through the streets of Bogota and established a provisional Republican government while strongly advocating that New Granada and Venezuela merge into one nation, Greater Colombia, or as it's known today, Gran Colombia. And this was Bolivar's greatest legacy, the establishment of a South American nation free from colonial overlords, bringing Spain's former colonies together into a new republic that went on to span from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Bolivar returned to Angostura, officially proposed the merger of New Granada and Venezuela, and on the 17th of December 1819, the Republic of Colombia was proclaimed. Today, we know this republic as Gran Colombia, to differentiate it from today's Republic of Colombia, one of the successor states to Gran Colombia. But a new nation was created, and even in its proclamation, it continued to aggressively stake its claim on Spanish-controlled colonial lands. The part of the world that we now call Ecuador was also claimed as part of the new republic, and this new republic was to only grow and grow as Bolivar continued campaigning against the Spanish. And interestingly, even when he wasn't campaigning, in 1820, the domestic situation in Spain became so bad that Spain wasn't able to meaningfully contest Bolivar and, and defend its colonial possessions. And so the Spanish sued for peace. They eventually, in late 1820, persuaded Bolivar to agree to a six-month truce in exchange of prisoners after spending the year fighting the Spanish, Bolivar decided he could have a bit of a rest and, you know, was happy to take a break. But the truce didn't last. While it was struck in November 1820, it was broken before the end of April 1821 when a Spanish-controlled city rebelled. It overthrew its colonial rulers and it defected to Gran Colombia without Bolivar lifting a finger. Bolivar refused to return the city to the Spanish. They defected fair and square, he said, and Spanish weren't happy with this. They saw that it was uh, in breach of the, of the truce. And the, even though Bolivar hadn't actually done any fighting, the Spanish decided that they were going to draw the sabers once again. And so the fighting began anew. Not that Bolivar minded, of course. I mean, the Spanish were decisively beaten shortly after at the Battle of Carabobo in June. This entrenched Venezuelan and more broadly Grand Colombian independence once and for all as the Spanish withdrew. But why stop there? Bolivar then marched on what is today Ecuador and seized control of that, marched through the, st the streets of Quito, its capital, in 1822. And then again, why stop there? In the years that followed, Bolivar continued his fight against the Spanish further south into Peru and, and beyond. So successful was his resistance against the Spanish that in 1825, when the area southeast of Peru gained its independence, it named itself Bolivia in his honour. Simon Bolivar is, as a result, one of very few people in history to have a country named after him. 
the Philippines, of course, named after King Philip II of Spain. Uh, Kiribati is named after the British sea captain Thomas Gilbert. And there are others. Eswatini is named after King Mswati II. Uzbekistan is named after Uzbek Khan of the Golden Horde. And the entire American continent is named after Amerigo Vespucci. But there aren't very many, only around 20 or so. And Bolivar was the recipient of a very rare honour indeed. Bolivia, interestingly, however, never never actually became a part of Gran Colombia, which restricted itself to modern-day Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, parts of Peru and Guyana. But even despite this, the political geography of South America would remain forever changed thanks to Bolivar. Even though the Spanish-American Wars of Independence would continue through the 1830s, Bolivar was absolutely instrumental in liberating much of the continent from Spanish rule. And further in also influencing how this part of the world would be governed after the Spanish were booted out, thanks to his Enlightenment beliefs and the way that they prevented him from seizing power for himself. However, I'm sorry to say that the story of Simon Bolivar does not have a happy ending. And it's an ending that is speeding towards us alarmingly fast here, because after returning to Bogota, the new capital of Gran Colombia from his campaigns, Things were not going as well as they could have been. There were arguments, deep-rooted and and fierce arguments, being held about the exact governmental structure that Gran Colombia should adopt. Now, I mentioned before, Bolivar, a strong proponent of centralised government. Others were arguing that they should use a federal system that would bring together the old colonies, but Bolivar was convinced that this would fail, that, that a federalist system would be too weak to hold together the former colonies and they would go off and splinter on their own and Gran Colombia would collapse. He used the Bolivian constitution, which had a centralised government. He'd had a hand in writing this constitution. He used this as an example of what he thought Gran Colombia should adopt for its government. But the simple fact is he didn't have the numbers, politically speaking. And at the constitutional convention that was held in Bogota in mid-1820, Bolivar and his allies who advocated for centralised government were roundly outvoted by a much larger Federalist contingent. And so Bolivar and his allies pulled out of the convention altogether, and so the convention collapsed. It failed to author a new constitution, and Bolivar instead was elevated to the position of President Liberator as a temporary caretaker of the young nation while it sorted itself out. But many found this not to be to their taste at all. They were worried that Bolivar would succumb to temptation, seize power for himself for good. They accused him of attempting to establish a dictatorship. And this dissent, it grew and it grew. And much as Bolivar had predicted, the former colonies united under Gran Colombia began to descend into infighting. The forces of separatism grew stronger as regional political conflict intensified until, realising that his leadership was doomed and that Gran Colombia would fail without the strong central government that he had sought to institute, Bolivar resigned as president on the 27th of April, 1830. And before the year was out, Gran Colombia had effectively fallen apart, proving him right about the unsustainability of a federalist model and the need for strong central government. And Gran Colombia officially was abolished the next year in 1831, as Ecuador, the Republic of New Granada, and the state of Venezuela went their separate ways as successor states. 
And tragically, or perhaps mercifully, Bolivar didn't live to see the final collapse of the realm that he had brought into being. After resigning, he decided to go into exile one final time to Europe to live out the rest of his days there. But sadly, he didn't even make it onto the ship. On the 17th of December, 1830, at the age of just 47, Simon Bolivar died of tuberculosis. His remains were eventually interred in Caracas next to his wife from all those years ago, but then moved to the National Pantheon of Venezuela, where you can still visit them today. And today, it's not just his remains that are still with us. The monumental legacy of this freedom fighter who redrew the maps of South America, threw off the yoke of Spanish imperialism, and liberated half a continent can be seen across the successor states to Gran Colombia. Bolivar is remembered as a hero to multiple nations. Bolivia is named after him, as is Venezuela officially, as the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela. And their currencies too bear his name. And many towns in Venezuela and Colombia, the successor to New Granada, are built around a central square invariably called Plaza Bolivar. And perhaps most obviously of all today, the flags of Ecuador, Colombia, and Venezuela are testaments to Bolivar's historical legacy. Grand Colombia's flag bore yellow, blue, and red stripes, and today the flags of its successors still fly those colours, representing the greatest legacy of Bolivar, the overthrow of Spanish rule, and the creation of Grand Colombia. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Simon Bolivar, the Liberator, one of the most monumentally important people in South American history. Do you hope you enjoyed this episode of Half House History? Of course, all the boring housekeeping stuff coming your way here. Halfhousehistory.net is the website. You can find all the links that you need there to contact the show, to support the show, what have you. Uh, you can visit the merch shop and buy everything from T-shirts to coffee mugs to face masks, all sorts of stuff in there if you want to grab it for yourself. And you can also... If you like, support the show directly via Patreon. Patreon.com slash half history is the best place to do that. Thank you to all the Patreons who are supporting me week in and week out. It's so good to have you, of course. Uh, many of you recipients of exclusive Patreon-only merch uh, with an incredible illustration of Herodotus reading stories to young his- oh, to historical figures cast as young children. It's, it's an incredible piece of work done by Jessica from Inkland Customs. And if you want to get your hands on it, the only place you can half House History's Patreon, so you can sign up today. And also gain access to other sorts, other stuff, um, early access to shows, uh, behind-the-scenes stuff, uncut episodes, talk about it every week. Anyway, uh, thank you to those of you who are out there sharing the good word of half House History. I do talk about telling your friends, telling your enemies, and telling people you're ambivalent about, but I appreciate people going on Reddit and posting about the show, sharing the fact that I've done an episode on this person or that person when they're asked about it on Twitter, people who are leaving reviews on, on iTunes and Spotify. It's really, really great to have so many ardent and fervent supporters around the world, so thank you to each and every one of you doing that. Um, but that's it. I'll see you back here next week for more Half House History. Until then, leaving you with a question, of course, posed on Reddit. Uh, This one about Ecuador, one of the nations that, of course, came out of uh, Gran Colombia, ultimately. It comes to us from the drum major, who asks, If the equator is zero degrees, why is Ecuador considered a tropical climate? (laughs) 